Welcome back to Corona Cold Reads, my entertainment world's answer to social isolation. Um, the Corona Cold Reads troupe has now officially completed every play in Shakespeare's canon, um, and we are moving on. Uh, as I'm recording this, we are actually we have actually finished our initial run of plays, which lasted a year and a half. Um, we began the very first week that the lockdowns began in Toronto, and we met for a while every two uh, twice every week. Um, and then we moved to once a week and we really developed a core troop of actors, both pro and amateur who came together, um, to read these plays, uh, every single week for a year and a half. So, um, we are now releasing them all for you to enjoy in podcast form. They're also all available on YouTube. If you prefer to watch the video version, um, I will give you a heads up for specific episodes. If I really think you should watch the YouTube version, um, cause there's a few that have really fun costumes and impressions and some cool visual effects and things. But for the most part, you should be okay to listen in podcast form. Uh, please do keep in mind that these are all real cold reads. For the most part, nobody found out uh, who they were reading, what characters they were reading um, with more than 24 hours notice. In most cases, people are genuinely reading cold. They haven't looked at the text beforehand. So there will be some stumbles and there will be points at which people are on mute and we have to figure out what's going on or a dog wanders into the frame or we have to deal with life interfering with our um, coping strategy here. So uh, please do be patient with that sort of thing. Um, so as we, we finished all of Shakespeare, so now we're moving on to the rest of the, I don't know, written word, I guess. Um, our strategy here was to break uh, everything down into mini seasons. Um, so we, we, we begin with uh, a season of Chekhov plays, and then we end with a season of Shaw plays. And in between, uh, we do a Sorkin season and a season of, uh, we do some seasonal things. So um, one-offs for Halloween or for Christmas or things like that. So we have a romance season for Valentine's. So everything is sort of uh, built like that. Um, in little chunks. So I hope you enjoy and um, please do check us out at my ent world, my ENT world, both on Twitter and Instagram. Um, there's lots of great contact content going up there, both designed for those platforms as well as linking you back to the website, which is myentertainmentworld.ca. You can find all of our written work um, reviews from all sorts of different arts uh, branches and we also there have the links to um, each of these posts where you can find the full cast lists um, and links to the videos as well if you're interested in checking those out for Corona Cold Reads um, and please do subscribe on iTunes where you can find all of our uh, podcast content which there's tons of it we have all sorts of different series going um, we have the favorite series in Corona Cold Reads and Corona Movie Club and um season one episode one and all sorts of other uh, great content in, in addition to our regular my entertainment world podcast so um please do check that out rate and review all that jazz and uh thanks for tuning in so welcome back to Chekhov season which actually has five plays in it last time i told you there were four but there are five he wrote five full-length plays and we're going to read them all for you this is the second it was the seagull um which is the one that i have seen produced the most and still somehow remains elusive somehow um I, it's one of the ones i have the hardest time fully wrapping my head around it's got one of the most tragic endings um and it's, it's quite inscrutable but i think we really 
gave it our best. And I think that we really land on something interesting here. Um, again, the Chekhov's were such a delight to read. Um, and they translated to Zoom really beautifully. So the cast of The Seagull by Corona Cold reads, um, Irina was played by Anne Van Leeuwen. Constantine was Saya Floyd. Peter Soren, Weldon Gorey. Nina was our was Hilary McCormick, who was a special guest star on this one. Um, Ilya Shamriff was Christopher Prentice. Paulina was Marlo K. Shaw. Masha was played by Rebecca Vega Romero. Boris Trigorin was Shailen McFall. Eugene Dorn, Miriam Bachman. Simon Medvedenko, Medvedenko, something like that, sorry, uh, is Laura Hubbard. Uh, Jakob Hillary Wardinger and the cook was Nicole Falgu. I hope you enjoy. So, uh, Chekhov's The Seagull, Act One. The scene is laid in the park on Soren's estate. A broad avenue of trees leads away from the audience towards a lake, which lies lost in the depths of the park. The avenue is obstructed by a rough stage, temporarily erected for the performance of amateur theatricals, and which screens the lake from view. There is a dense growth of bushes to the left and right of the stage. A few chairs and a little table are placed in front of the stage. The sun has just set. Jakob and some other workmen are heard hammering and coughing on the stage behind the lowered curtain. Masha and Medvedenko come in from the left, returning from a walk. Why do you always wear mourning? I dress in black to match my life. I am unhappy. Why should you be unhappy? I, I don't understand it. You are healthy, and though your father is not rich, he has a good competency. My life is far harder than yours. I only have 23 rubles a month to live on, and I don't wear mourning. Happiness does not depend on riches. Poor men are often happy. In theory, yes, but not in reality. Take my case. For instance, my mother, my two sisters, my little brother, and I must all live somehow on my salary of 23 rubles a month. We have to eat and drink, I take it, and you wouldn't have us go without tea or sugar, would you? Or tobacco? Answer me that if you can. The play will soon begin. Mm, yes. Nina Zaryachnaya is going to act in Triplip's play. They love one another, and their two souls will unite tonight in the effort to interpret the same idea by different means. There is no ground on which your soul and mine can meet. I love you. Too restless and sad to stay home, I tramp here every day, six miles and back, to be met only by your indifference. I am poor. My family is large. You can have no inducement to marry a man who cannot even find sufficient mood find sufficient food for his own mouth. It is not that. I am touched by your affection, but I cannot return it, that is all. Will you take some? No. Thank you. The air is sultry. A storm is brewing for tonight. You do nothing but moralize or else talk about money. 
to you, poverty is the greatest misfortune that can befall a man, but I think it is a thousand times easier to go begging in rags than to... You wouldn't understand that, though. Soren, leaning on a cane, and Trepliev come in. For some reason, my boy, country life doesn't suit me, and I'm sure I shall never get used to it. Last night, I went to bed at ten and woke at nine this morning, feeling as if, from oversleep, my brain had stuck to my skull. <laughs> and yet, I accidentally dropped off to sleep again after dinner and feel utterly done up at this moment. Oh, it's like a nightmare. There is no doubt you should live in town. You shall be called um, when the play begins, my friends, but you must not stay here now. Go away, please. Uh, Miss Masha, will you kindly ask your father to leave the dog unchained? It, it howled so last night that my sister was unable to sleep. You must speak to my father yourself. Please excuse me, I can't do so. Come, let us go. You will let us know when the play begins. Masha and Medvedenko go out. I foresee that that dog is going to howl all night again. It's always this way in the country. I've never been able to live as I like here. I come down for a month's holiday to rest and all, and am plagued so by their nonsense that I long to escape after the first day. <laughs> I have always been glad to get away from this place, but I have been retired now. And this was the only place I had to come to. Willy-nilly, one must live somewhere. We are going to take a swim, Mr. Constantine. Uh, very well, but you must be back in ten minutes. And we will, sir. Just like a real theater. See, there we will have the curtain, the foreground, the background, and all. No artificial scenery is needed. The eye travels direct to the lake and rests on the horizon. The curtain will be raised as the moon rises at half past eight. Splendid. Of course, the effect, the whole effect we've ruined if Nina is late. She should be here by now, but her father and stepmother watch her so closely that it is like stealing her from a prison to get her away from home. Your hair and beard are all on end. Oughtn't you have them crimped? Hmm. <sighs> They're the tragedy of my existence. Even when I was young, I always looked as if I were drunk and all. Women never liked me. Why is my sister out of temper? Why? Because she is jealous and bored. She is not acting this evening, but Nina is, and so she has set herself against me and against the performance of the play and against the play itself, which she hates without ever having read it. Does <laughs> she really? He is furious because Nina is going to have the success on this little stage. My mother is a psychological curiosity, without doubt brilliant and talented, capable of sobbing over a novel, of reciting Nekrasov's poetry by heart, and of nursing the sick like an angel in heaven. You should see what happens if anyone starts begins praising dues to her. She alone must be praised and written about and raved over. Her marvelous acting in La Dama Camelas extolled to the skies. And she cannot get all that rubbish in the country. She grows peevish and cross and thinks we are all against her and to blame for it all. She's superstitious too. She dreads burning three candles and fears the 13th day of the month. Then 
She is stingy. I know for a fact that she has 70,000 rubles in a bank at Odessa, but she's ready to burst into tears if you ask her to lend you a penny. You've taken it into your head that your mother dislikes your play, and the thought of it has excited you and all. Keep calm. Your mother adores you. <sighs> she loves me. Loves me not. Loves. Loves me not. Loves. Loves me not. You see, she doesn't love me, and why should she? She likes life and love and gay clothes, and I am already 25 years old. Sufficient reminder to her that she is no longer young. When I am away, she's only 32. In my presence, she is 43, and she hates me for it. She knows, too, that I despise the modern stage. She adores it, and imagine that she's working on it for the benefit of humanity and her sacred art. But to me, the theater is merely a vehicle of convention and prejudice. The curtain rises on that little three-walled room when those mighty geniuses, those high priests of art, show us people in the act of eating, drinking, loving, walking, wearing their coats, and attempt to extract a moral from their insipid talk. When playwrights give us a thousand different guises, the same, same, same old stuff, then I must needs run from it. As Moss Podge ran from the Eiffel Tower that was about to crush him by its vulgarity. But we can't do without a theater. No, but we must have it under a new form. If we can't do that, us, that let us rather not have it at all. I love my mother. I love her devotedly, but I think she leads a stupid life. She always has this man of letters of hers on her mind, and the newspapers are always frightening her to death, and I'm tired of it. Plain human egoism sometimes speaks in my heart, and... I regret that my mother is a famous actress. If she were an ordinary woman, I think I should be a happier man. What could be more intolerable and foolish than my position, uncle, where when I find myself the only non-entity among a crowd of her guests, all celebrated authors and artists, I feel that they only endure me because I am her son. Personally, I am nothing, nobody. I pulled through my third year at college by the skin of my teeth, as they say. I have neither money nor brains, and on my passport, you may read that I am simply a citizen of Kiev. So was my father, but he was a well-known actor. When the celebrities that frequent my mother's drawing room deign to notice me at all, I know they only look at me to measure my insignificance. I read their thoughts and suffer from humiliation. <sighs> Tell me, by the way, what, what is Trigorin like? I can't understand him, he's always so silent. Trigorin is clever, simple, well-mannered, and a little, I might say, melancholic in disposition. Though still under 40, he is surfeited with praise. As for his stories, they are, uh, how shall I put it, pleasing, full of talents, but if you have read Tolstoy or Zola, you somehow can't enjoy Trigorin. Do you know, my boy, I like literary men. I once passionately desired two things, to marry and to become an author. I have succeeded in neither. It must be pleasant to be even an insignificant author. I hear footsteps. I cannot live without her. Even the sound of her footsteps is music to me. I'm madly happy. Go quickly to meet Nina, who comes in at the moment. My enchantress, my girl of dreams. 
it can't be that I am late. No, I am not late. No, no, no. <laughs> I have been in a fever all day. I was so afraid my father would prevent my coming, but he and my grandma, gra stepmother have just gone driving. The sky is clear. The moon is rising. How I hurried to get here. How I urged my horse to go faster and faster. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you. Well, oh, your eyes look as if you had been crying. You mustn't do that. It is nothing. Nothing. Do let us hurry. I must go in half an hour. No, no. For heaven's sake, do not urge me to stay. My father doesn't know I am here. As a matter of fact, it is time to begin now. I must call the audience. Let me call them, and all. I'm going this minute. He goes towards the right, begins to sing the two grenadiers, then stops. I was singing that once when a fellow lawyer said to me, You have a powerful voice, sir. Then he thought a moment and added, But it is a disagreeable one. <laughs> he goes out laughing. My father and his wife never will let me come here. They call this place Bohemia and are afraid I shall become an actress. But this lake attracts me as it does the Gauls. My heart is full of you. We are alone. Isn't that someone over there? No. They kiss one another. What is that tree? An elm. Why does it look so dark? It is evening. Everything looks dark now. Don't go away early. I implore you. I must. What if I were to follow you, Nina? I shall stand under your garden all night with my eyes on your window. That would be impossible. The watchman would see you, and treasure is not used to you yet, and would bark. I love you. Hush. Who is that? Is that you, Yaakov? To your places then, the moon is rising. Uh, to your places then, the moon is rising and the play must commence. Uh, yes, sir. Is the alcohol ready? Is the sulfur ready? There must be fumes of sulfur in the air when the eyes shine out. Go, now everything is ready. Are you nervous? Yes, very. I am not so much afraid of your mother as I am of Tregoran. I am terrified and ashamed to act before him. He is so famous. Is he young? Yes. What beautiful stories he writes. I have never read any of them, so I can't say. Your play is very hard to act. There are no living characters in it. Living characters? Life must be represented not as it is, but as it ought to be, as it appears in dreams. There is so little action. It seems more like a recitation. I think love should always come into every play. Nina and Trepliev go up onto the little stage. Paulina and Doran come in. Oh, it's getting dark. Go back and put on your galoshes. I am quite warm. You will never take care of yourself. You are quite obstinate about it, and yet you are a doctor, and you know quite well that damp air is bad for you. You like to see me suffer, that's what it is. You sat out on the terrace all yesterday evening on purpose. Oh, tell me not that youth is wasted. You were so enchanted by the conversation of Madame Arcadia that you did not even notice the cold. Confess that you admire her. I am 55 years old. <laughs> a trifle. That is not old for a man. 
You have kept your looks magnific magnificently, and women still like you. What are you trying to tell me? You men are all ready to go down on your knees to an actress, all of you. Once more I stand before thee. It is only right that artists should be made much of by society and treated differently from, let us say, merchants. It is a kind of idealism. When women have loved you and thrown themselves at your head, has that been idealism? I can't say. There has been a great deal that was admirable in my relations with women. In me, they liked, above all, the superior doctor. Ten years ago, you remember, I was the only decent doctor they had in this part of the country. And then I have always acted like a man of honor. Dearest. Be quiet. Here they come. Akadina comes in on Soren's arm. Also Trigorin, Shemreyev, Medvienko, and Masha. She acted most beautifully at the Poltava Fair in 1873. She was really magnificent. But tell me, too, where Chad and the comedian is now. He was inimitable as Raspluif. Better than Sadovsky. Where is he now? Ask me where all those antediluvians are. I know nothing about them. Mm, Pasha, Chadin, there are none left like him. The stage is not what it was in his time. There were sturdy oaks growing on it then, or now, but stumps remain. It is true that we have few dazzling geniuses these days, but on the other hand, the average of acting is, is much higher. I cannot agree with you. However, that is a matter of taste. Say, Jute Stibus. Enter Trepliev from behind the stage. When will the play begin, my dear boy? In a moment, I must ask you to have patience. My son, thou turnst mine eyes into my very soul, and there I see such black grained spots as will not leave their tinct. The horn is blown behind the stage. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, the play is about to begin. I shall commence. He oh, taps the door with a stick and speaks into a loud voice. Oh, ye time-honored ancient mists that drive at night across the surface of this lake, blind you our eyes with sleep and show us in our dreams that which will be in twice 10,000 years. There won't be anything in twice 10,000 years. Well, then let them now show us that nothingness. Yes, let them. We are asleep. The curtain rises. A vista opens across the lake. The moon hangs low above the horizon and is reflected in the water. Nina, dressed in white, is seen seated on a great rock. All men and beasts, lions, eagles, and quails, horned stags, geese, spiders, silent fish that inhabit the waves, starfish from the sea, and creatures invisible to the eye. In one word, Life, all, all life, completing the dreary round imposed upon it, has died out at last. A thousand years have passed since the earth last bore a living creature on her breast, and the unhappy moon now lights her lamp in vain. No longer are the cries of the storks heard in the meadows, or the drone of beetles in the groves of limes. All is cold, cold, 
All is void, void, void. All is terrible, terrible. The bodies of all living creatures have dropped to dust and eternal matters have transformed them into stones and water and clouds, but their spirit have flowed together into one. And that great world soul am I. In me is the spirit of the great Alexander, the spirit of Napoleon, of Caesar, of Shakespeare, and of the tiniest leech that swims. In me, the consciousness of man has joined hands with the instinct of the animal. I understand all, 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 and each life lives again in me. Let's look around along the shores. What decadent rubbish is this? Mother! I am alone. Once in a hundred years, my lips are opened. My voice echoes mournfully across the desert earth, and no one hears. And you, poor lights of the marsh, you do not hear me. You are endangered at sunset in the putrid mud, in the flit wavering about the lake till dawn, unconscious, unreasoning, unwarmed by the breath of life. Satan, father of eternal matter, trembling lest the spark of life should glow in you, has ordered an unceasing movement of the atoms that compose you. And so you shift and change forever. I, the spirit of the universe, I alone am immutable and eternal. Like a captive in a dungeon deep and void, I know not where I am, nor what awaits me. One thing only is not hidden from me. In my fierce and obstinate battle with Satan, the source of the forces of matter, I am destined to be victorious in the end. Matter and spirit will then be one at last in glorious harmony, and the reign of freedom will begin on earth. But this can only come to pass by slow degrees. When after countless eons, the moon and earth and shining Sirius himself shall fall to dust. Until that hour, oh, horror, horror, horror. A pause. Two glowing red points are seen shining across the lake. Satan. My mighty foe advances. I see his dread and lurid eyes. I sulfur. Is that done on purpose? Yes. Oh, I see. That's part of the effect. Mother, he longs for man. You've taken your hat off again. Put it on, you will catch cold. The doctor has taken off his hat to Satan, father of eternal matter. Oh, enough of this. There is an end to the performance. Down, down with the curtain. Why? What are you so angry about? The curtain. Down with it. Excuse me, I forgot that only a chosen few might write plays or act them. I have infringed on the monopoly. The monopoly. I... I... He would like to say more, but waves his hand instead and goes out to the left. What is the matter with him? You should not handle youthful egoism so roughly, sister. What did I say to him? You hurt his feelings. But he told me himself that this was all in fun, so I treated his play as if it were a comedy. Nevertheless. Now it appears that he has 
produced a masterpiece, if you please. I suppose it was not meant to amuse us all, but that he arranged the performance and fumigated us with sulfur to demonstrate to us how plays should be written and what is worth acting. I'm tired of him. No one could stand his constant thrusts and sallies. He is a willful, egotistical boy. He had hoped to give you pleasure. Is that so? <laughs> I noticed, though, that he did not choose an ordinary play, but forced his decadent trash on us. I'm willing to listen to any raving, so long as it is not meant seriously. But in showing us this, he pretended to be introducing us to a new form of art and inaugurating a new era, in my opinion. There was nothing new about it. It was simply an exhibition of bad temper. Everybody must write as he feels, and as best he may. Let him write as he feels and can, but let him spare me his nonsense. Thou art angry, O oh Jove. I am a woman, not Jove. And I am not angry. I am only sorry to see a young man foolishly wasting his time. I did not mean to hurt him. No one has any ground for separating life from matters. The spirit may well consist of the union of material atoms. Someday, um, you should write a play and put on the stage the, uh, the life of a schoolmaster. It is a hard, hard life. I agree with you. But do not let us talk about plays or atoms now. This is such a lovely evening. Listen to the singing, friends. How sweet it sounds. Yes, they are singing across the water. Sit down beside me here. 10 or 15 years ago, we had music and singing on this lake almost all night. There are six houses on its shores. All was noise and laughter and romance. That's such romance. The young star and idol of them all in those days was this man here, Dr. Eugene Dorn. He is fascinating now, but he was ill. Then, but my conscience is beginning to prick me. Why did I hurt my poor boy? I am uneasy about him. Constantine! Constantine! Shall I go and find him? Please, my dear. Mr. Constantine! Oh, Mr. Constantine! I see that the play will never be finished, so now I can go home. Good evening. Bravo! 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 We were quite charmed by your acting. With your looks and such a lovely voice, it is a crime for you to hide yourself in the country. You must be very talented. It is your duty to go on stage. Do you hear me? It is a dream of my life, which will never come true. Who knows? Perhaps it will. But let me present Monsieur Boris Trigorin. I am delighted to meet you. I have read all your books. <laughs> Don't be afraid of him, dear. He is a simple, good-natured soul, even if he is a celebrity. <laughs> See? He has embarrassed himself. 
Couldn't the curtain be raised now? It is depressing to have it down. Jakob, my man, <clears throat> raise the curtain. It was a curious play, wasn't it? Very. I, I couldn't understand it at all, but I, I watched it with great pleasure because you acted with such sincerity. And the setting was beautiful. Must be a lot of fish in this lake. Yes, there are. I love fishing. I know of nothing pleasanter than to sit on a lake shore in the evening with one's eyes on a floating cork. Why, I, I should think that for one who has tasted the joys of creation, no other pleasure could exist. Don't talk like that. He always begins to flounder when people say nice things to him. <laughs> I remember when the famous Silva was singing once in the opera house at Moscow, how delighted we all were when he took the low sea. Well, you can imagine our astonishment when one of the church cantors, who happened to be sitting in the gallery, suddenly boomed out, Bravo, Silva, a whole octave lower, like this. Bravo, Silva. The audience was left breathless. An angel of silence is flying over our heads. I must go. Goodbye. Where must you go so early? We shan't allow it. My father is waiting for me. How cruel he is, really. They kiss each other. Then I suppose we can't keep you, but it is very hard indeed to let you go. If you only knew how hard it is for me to leave you all. Somebody must see you home, my pet. No, no. Don't go. I must. Stay just one hour more and I'll come now, really, you know. No, no, I, I can't. She shakes hands with him and quickly goes out. Unlucky girl. They say that her mother left the whole of an immense fortune to her husband. And now the child is penniless because the father has already willed everything away to his second wife. It's pitiful. Yes. Her papa is a perfect beast. And I don't mind saying so. It is what he deserves. Come, let us go in. The night is damp and my legs are aching. Yes, you act as if they were turned to stone. You could hardly move them. Come, you unfortunate old man. She takes his arm. Permit me, madame. Mm, I hear that dog howling again. Won't you please have it unchanged, Sh Sh Shamrayev? No, I really can't, sir. The granary is full of millet, and I am afraid thieves might break in if the dog were not there. Yes, a whole octave lower. Bravo, Silva. And he wasn't a singer either, just a simple church canter. What salary does the church pay its singers? I'll go out except Dorn. May have lost my judgment and my wits, but I must confess I liked that play. There was something in it. When the girl spoke of her solitude and the devil's eyes gleamed across the lake, I felt my hands shaking with excitement. It was so fresh and naive. But here he comes. Let me say something pleasant to him. 
Treplieff comes in. All gone already? I am here. Masha has been yelling for me all over the park. Insufferable creature. Constantine, your play delighted me. It was strange, of course, and I did not hear the end, but it made a deep impression on me. You have a great deal of talent and must persevere in your work. Hebliev seizes his hand and squeezes it hard, then kisses him impetuously. Tut, tut, how excited you are. Your eyes are full of tears. Listen to me. You chose your subject in the realm of abstract thought, and you did quite right. A work of art should invariably embody some lofty idea. Only that which is seriously meant can ever be beautiful. How pale you are. So you advise me to persevere? Yes, but use your talent to express only deep and eternal truths. I have led a quiet life, as you know, and am a contented man. But if I should ever experience the, the exaltation that an artist feels during his moments of creation, I think I should spurn this material envelope of my soul and everything connected with it and should soar away into heights above this earth. I, I beg your pardon, but where is Nina? And yet another thing. Every work of art should have a definite object in view. You should know why you are writing, for if you follow the road of art without a goal before your eyes, you will lose yourself and your genius will be your ruin. Where's Nina? She's gone home. Gone home? What shall I do? I want to see her. I must see her. I shall follow her. My dear boy, keep quiet. I am going. I must go. Masha comes in. Your mother wants you to come in, Mr. Constantine. She is waiting for you and is very uneasy. Tell her I have gone away. And for heaven's sake, all of you, leave me alone. Go away. Don't follow me about. Come, come, old chap. Don't act like this. It isn't kind at all. Goodbye, doctor, and thank you. Trepliev goes out. Ah, uh, youth. Youth. It is always youth, youth, when there is nothing else to be said. She takes snuff. Dorn takes a snuff box out of her hands and flings it into the bushes. Uh, don't do that. It is horrid. I hear music in the house. I must go in. Wait a moment. What do you want? Let me tell you again. I feel like talking. I do not love my father, but my heart turns to you. For some reason, I feel with all my soul that you are near to me. Help me. Help me, or I shall do something foolish and mock at my life and ruin it. I am at the end of my strength. What is the matter? How, how can I help you? I am in agony. No one, no one can imagine how I suffer. She lays her head on his shoulder and speaks softly. I love Constantine. Oh, how excitable you all are. And how much love there is about this lake of spells. But what can I do for you, my child? What? What? 
The curtain falls. Act two, the lawn in front of Soren's house. The house stands in the background on a broad terrace. The lake, brightly reflecting the rays of the sun, lies to the left. There are flower beds here and there. It is noon. The day is hot. Arkadina, Dorn, and Masha are sitting on the bench on the lawn in the shade of an old linden. An open book is lying on Dorn's knee. Come, come, get up. Stand beside me. You are 22, and I am almost twice your age. Tell me, doctor, which one of us is the younger looking? You are, of course. You see? Now, why is it? Because I work. My heart and mind are always busy, whereas you never move off the same spot. You don't live. It is a maxim of mine never to look into the future. I never admit the thought of old age or death and just accept what comes to me. I feel as if I had been in the world a thousand years and I trail my life behind me like an endless scarf. Often I have no desire to live at all. Of course, that is foolish. One ought to pull oneself together and shake off some such nonsense. Elvero flowers. And then I keep myself as correct looking as an Englishman. I am always well groomed, as the saying is, and carefully dressed with my hair neatly arranged. Do you think I should ever permit myself to leave the house half dressed with untidy hair? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> I have kept my looks by never letting myself slump as some women do. <clears throat> See me tripping on tiptoe like a 15-year-old girl. I see. <laughs> Nevertheless, I shall continue my reading. Let me see. We have come to uh, the grain dealer and the rats. And the rats. Go on. No, give me the book. It is my turn to read. <clears throat> and the rats. Ah, here it is. It is as dangerous for society to attract and indulge authors as it is for grain dealers to raise rats in their granaries. Yet society loves authors. And so when a woman has found one whom she wishes to make her own, she lays siege to him by indulging and flattering him. That may be so in France, but it is certainly not so in Russia. We do not carry out a program like that. With us, a woman is usually head over ears in love with an author before she attempts to lay siege to him. You have an example before your eyes in me and Trickle. So, we are happy now, eh? We are enjoying ourselves today, are we? A father and stepmother have gone away to there, and we are free for three whole days. I am so happy. I belong to you now. She looks lovely today. Yes, she has put on her prettiest dress and looks sweet. That was nice of, of you. But we mustn't praise her too much. We shall spoil her. Where is Tregorin? He is fishing off the wharf. 
wonder he isn't bored. What are you reading? On the Water by Maupassant. <clears throat> but the rest is neither true nor interesting. I am uneasy about my son. Tell me, what is the matter with him? Why is he so dull and depressed lately? He spends all his days on the lake and I scarcely ever see him anymore. His heart is heavy. Please recite something from his play. Shall I? Is it so interesting? When he recites, his eyes shine and his face grows pale. His voice is beautiful and sad and he has the ways of a poet. Pleasant dreams. Peter! Mm -hmm. Are you asleep? Not a bit of it. You don't do a thing for your health, brother, but you really ought to. The idea of doing anything for one's health at 65. One still wants to live at 65. Take some chamomile tea. I think a journey to some watering place would be good for him. Why, yes, he might go as well as not. You don't understand. There is nothing to understand in this case. It is quite clear. He ought to give up smoking. What nonsense? No, that is not nonsense. Wine and tobacco destroy the individuality. After a cigar or a glass of vodka, you are no longer Peter Soren, but Peter Soren plus somebody else. Your ego breaks in two. You begin to think of yourself in the third person. It is easy for you to condemn smoking and drinking. You've known what life is, but what about me? I've served in the Department of Justice for 28 years, but I've never lived. I've never had any experiences. You were satiated with life, and that is why you have an inclination for philosophy. But I want to live. That is why I drink my wine for dinner and smoke cigars and all. One must take life seriously. And to take a cure at 65 and regret that one did not have more pleasure in youth is, forgive my saying so, trifling. It must be lunchtime. Oh, my foot has gone to sleep. He is going to have a couple of drinks before lunch. The poor soul is unhappy. That is a trifle, Your Honor. You judge her like a man who has obtained all he wants in life. Oh, what could be duller than this dear tedium of the country? The air is hot and still. Nobody does anything but sit and philosophize about life. It is pleasant, my friends, to sit and listen to you here, but I have rather a thousand times sit alone in the room of a hotel, learning a role by heart. You are quite right. I understand how you feel. Of course it is pleasanter to live in town. One can sit in one's library with a telephone at one's elbow. No one comes in without being first announced by the footman. The streets are full of cabs and, and all. Colorful flowers. Shramov comes in, followed by Paulina. Here they, <clears throat> here they are. How do you do? He kisses Arkadina's hand and then Nina's. I am delighted to see you looking so well. My wife tells me that you mean to go to town with her today. Is that so? Yes, that is what I had planned to do. Mm. 
That is splendid. But how do you intend to get there, madam? We're hauling rye today, and all the men are busy. What horses would you take? What horses? <laughs> how do I know what horses we shall have? Well, we, we have the carriage horses. The carriage horses? And where am I to find the harness for them? This is astonishing. My dear madam, I have the greatest respect for your talents and would gladly sacrifice ten years of my life for you, but I cannot let you have any horses today. But if I must go to town? What an extraordinary state of affairs! You do not know, madam, what it is to run a farm. That is an old story. Under these circumstances, I shall go back to Moscow this very day. Order a carriage for me from the village or I shall go to the station on foot. Under these circumstances, I resign my position. You must find yourself another manager. It is like this every summer. Every summer I am insulted here. I shall never set foot here again. She goes out to the left in the direction of the wharf. In a few minutes, she is seen entering the house, followed by Dragorin, who carries a bucket and fishing rod. What the deuce did he mean by his impudence? I, I want all the horses brought here at once. How could he refuse anything to Madame Marchetti, the famous actress? Is not every wish, every caprice even of hers more important than any farm work? This is incredible. What can I do about it? Put yourself in my place and tell me what I can do. Let us go and find my sister and I'll beg her not to go. He looks in the direction in which Shamriath went out. That man is insufferable. Regular tyrant. Sit still and let us wheel you. Mm. He and Medbinko push the chair before them. This is terrible! Yes, yes, it is terrible, but he won't leave. I shall have a talk with him in a moment. They go out. Only Dorn and Polina are left. How tiresome people are. Your husband deserves to be thrown out of your neck and crop, but it will all end by this old Granny Soren and his sister asking the man's pardon. See if it doesn't. He has sent the carriage horses into the fields, too. These misunderstandings occur every day. If you only knew how they excite me. I am ill, see. I am trembling all over. I cannot endure his rough ways. Eugene, my darling, my beloved, take me to you. Our time is short. We are no longer young. Let us end deception and concealment, even though it is only at the end of our lives. I am 55 years old. It, it is too late now for me to change my ways of living. I know that you refuse me because there are other women who are near to you, and you cannot take everybody. I understand. Excuse me, I see I am only bothering you. Lena is seen near the house picking a bunch of flowers. No, it, it is all right. I am tortured by jealousy. Of course you are a doctor and cannot escape from women. I understand. How are things in there? Madame Orcadina is crying and Soren is having an attack of asthma. Let us go and give them both some chamomile tea. <laughs> Here are some flowers for you. Thank you goes into the house. Pretty flowers. 
As they reach the house, she says in a low voice, Flower me. Dorn hands her the flower. She tears them to pieces and flings them away. They both go into the house. How strange to see a famous actress weeping. And for such a trifle. Is it not strange, too, that a famous author should sit fishing all day? He is the idol of public. The papers are full of him. His photograph is for sale everywhere. His works have been translated into many foreign languages, and yet he is overjoyed if he catches a couple of minnows. I always thought famous people were distant and proud. I thought they despised the common crowd which exalts riches and birth and avenged themselves on it by dazzling it with the inextinguishable honor and glory of their fame. But here, I see them weeping and playing cards and flying into passions like everybody else. Treplieff comes in and without a hat on, carrying a gun and a dead seagull. Are you alone here? Yes. Treplieff lays the seagull at her feet. What do you mean by this? I was base enough today to kill the skull. I lay it at your feet. What is happening to you? She picks up the gull and stands, looking at it. So shall I soon end my own life. You have changed that I fail to recognize you. Yes, I have changed since the time I ceased to recognize you. You have failed me. Your look is cold. You do not like to have me near you. You have grown so irritable lately, and you talk so darkly and symbolically that you must forgive me if I fail to follow you. I am too simple to understand you. All this began when my play failed so dismally. Woman can never forgive failure. I have burnt the manuscripts to the last page. Oh, if you could fathom my unhappiness. Your estrangement to me is terrible, incredible. It is as if I had suddenly waked to find this lake dried up and sunk into the earth. You say you are too simple to understand me, but what is there to understand? You disliked my play. You have no faith in my powers. You already think me as commonplace and worthless as many are. How well I can understand your feelings, and that understanding is to me like a dagger in the brain. May it be accursed together with my stupidity, which sucks my lifeblood like a snake. He sees Dragoran, who appears reading a book. There comes real genius, striding along like another Hamlet and with a book too. Words, words, words. You feel the warmth of that sun already. You smile, your eyes melt and glow in its liquid rays. I shall not disturb you. He goes out. Takes snuff and drinks vodka. Always wears black dresses. He's loved by a school teacher. How do you do? How are you, Miss Nina? Owing to an unforeseen development of circumstances, it seems that we are leaving here today. You and I shall probably never see each other again, and I'm sorry for it. I seldom meet a young and pretty girl now. I can hardly remember how it feels to be 19. And the girls in my books are seldom living characters. I should like to change places with you, if for an hour, to look out at the world through your eyes and so find out what sort of a little person you are. 
and I should like to change places with you. Why? To find out how a famous genius feels. What is it like to be famous? What sensation does it give you? What sensation? I don't believe it gives any. I, either you exaggerate my fame or else if it exists, all I can say is that one simply doesn't feel fame in any way. But when you read about yourself in the papers. If the critics praise me, I'm happy. If they condemn me, I am out of sorts for two days. This is a wonderful world. If you only knew how I envy you. Men are born to different destinies. Some dully drag a weary, useless life behind them, lost in the crowd, unhappy, while to one out of a million, as to you, for instance, comes a bright destiny full of interest and meaning. You are lucky. Lucky? Hmm, I hear you talking about fame and happiness and bright destinies and those fine words of yours mean as much to me, forgive me for saying so, as sweetmeats do, which I never eat. You are very young and very kind. Your life is beautiful. I see nothing especially lovely about it. Excuse me, I must go at once and begin writing again. I'm in a hurry. You have stepped on my pet corn, as they say, and I am getting excited and a little cross. Let us discuss this bright and beautiful life of mine, though. Violent obsessions sometimes lay hold of a man. He may, for instance, think day and night of nothing but the moon. I have such a moon. Day and night, I am held in the grip of one besetting thought to write. Right, right. Hardly have I finished one book, then something urges me to write another, and then a third, and then a fourth. I write ceaselessly. I am, as it were, on a treadmill. I hurry forever from one story to another and can't help myself. Do you see anything bright and beautiful in that? Oh, it's wild life. Even now, thrilled as I am by talking to you, I do not forget for an instant that an unfinished story is awaiting me. My eye falls on that cloud there, and which has the shape of a grand piano. I instantly make a mental note that I must remember to mention in my story a cloud floating by that looked like a grand piano. I smell heliotrope. I mutter to myself, a sickly smell, the color worn by widows must remember that in writing my next description of a summer evening. I catch an idea in every sentence of yours or of my own and hasten to lock all these treasures in my literary storeroom, thinking that someday they may be useful to me. As soon as I stop working, I rush off to the theater or go fishing in the hope that I may find oblivion there, but no. Some new subject for a story is sure to come rolling through my brain like an iron cannonball. I hear my desk calling, and I have to go back to it and begin to write, write, write once more. And so it goes for everlasting. I cannot escape myself, though I feel that I am consuming my life. 
To prepare the honey I feed to unknown crowds, I am doomed to brush the bloom from my dearest flower, to tear them from their stems and trample the roots that bore them underfoot. And I am not a madman. <laughs> Should I not be treated by those who know me as one mentally deceased? It is always the same, same old story, till I begin to think that all this praise and admiration must be a deception that I am being hoodwinked because they know I'm crazy and sometimes tremble lest I should be grabbed from behind and whisked off to a lunatic asylum. The best years of my life and youth were made one continual agony for me by writing. A young author, especially if at first he does not make a success, feels clumsy and ill at ease and superfluous in the world. His nerves are all on edge and stretched to the point of breaking. He is irresistibly attracted to literary and artistic people and hovers about them unknown and unnoticed, fearing they look them bravely in the eye like a man with a passion for gambling whose money is all gone. I did not know my readers, but for some reason I imagined they were distrustful and unfriendly. I was mortally afraid of the public. And when my first play appeared, it seemed to me as if all the dark eyes in the audience were looking at it with enmity and all the blue ones with cold indifference. How terrible it was. It was agony. But don't your inspirations and the act of creation give you moments of lofty happiness? Yes. Writing is a pleasure to me, and so is the reading of the proofs, but no sooner does a book leave the press than it becomes odious to me. It's not what I meant it to be. I made a mistake to write it at all. I'm provoked and discouraged. And the public reads it and says, yes, it is clever and pretty, but not nearly as good as Tolstoy. Or it is a lovely thing, but not as good as Turgenev. Father and sons. <laughs> and so it will always be. To my dying day, I shall hear people say clever and pretty. Clever and pretty. And nothing more. And when I'm gone, those that knew me will say as they pass my grave, here lies Trigorin, a clever writer, but was not as good as Turgenev. You must excuse me, but I decline to understand what you are talking about. The fact is, you have been spoiled by your success. What success have I had? I have never pleased myself as a writer. I do not like myself at all. The trouble is that I am made giddy, as it were, by the fumes of my brain, and often hardly know what I am writing. I love this lake, these trees, the blue heaven. Nature's voice speaks to me and wakes a feeling of passion in my heart, and I am overcome by an uncontrollable desire to write. But I'm not only a painter of landscapes, I am a man of the city besides. I love my country too, and her people. I feel that as a writer, it is my duty to speak of their sorrow, of their future, and also of science, of the rights of man, and so forth. So I write on every subject, and the public holds me on all sides, sometimes in anger, and I race and dodge like a fox with a, a pack of hounds on his tail. I see life and knowledge flitting away from before me. I'm left behind like a, a peasant who has missed his train at a station. 
And finally, I come back to the conclusion that all I am fit for is to describe landscapes and that whatever else I attempt rings abominably false. You work too hard to realize the importance of your writings. What if you are disconnected with yourself? To others, you appear a great and splendid man. If I were a writer like you, I should devote my whole life to the service of the Russian people, knowing at the same time that their welfare depended on their power to rise to the heights I had attained. And the people should send me before them in a chariot of triumph. In a chariot? Do you think I'm Agamemnon? For the bliss of being a writer or an actress, I could endure want and disillusionment and the hatred of my friends and the pangs of my own dissatisfaction with myself, but I should demand in return fame, real astounding fame. <sighs> my head reels. Boris! Boris! She's calling me probably to come and pack. I don't want to leave this place. What a blessing such beauty is. Do you see that house there on the far shore? Yes. That was my dead mother's home. I was born there and have lived all my life beside this lake. I know every little island in it. This is a beautiful place to live. He catches sight of the dead seagull. What is that? A gull. Constantine shot it. What a lovely bird. Really, I can't bear to go away. Can't you persuade Arena to stay? He writes something in his notebook. What are you writing? Nothing much. Only an idea that occurred to me. He puts the book back in his pocket. Idea for a short story. A young girl grows up on the shores of a lake, as you have. She loves the lake as the gulls do, and is happy and free as they are. But a man sees her who chances to come that way and destroys her out of idleness, as this gull here has been destroyed. Boris? Where are you? I'm coming this minute. Goes towards the house, looking back at Nina. Arkadina remains in the window. What do you want? We're not going away after all. Trigorin goes into the house. Nina comes forward and stands lost in thought. It is a dream. The curtain falls. Act three, the dining room of Soren's house. Doors open out of it to the right and left. A table stands in the center of the room. Trunks and boxes encumber the floor and pre preparations for departure are evident. Trigorin is sitting at a table eating his breakfast and Masha is standing beside him. I am telling you all these things because you write books and they may be useful to you. I tell you honestly, I should not have lived another day if he had wounded himself fat fatally. Yet I am courageous. I have decided to tear this love of mine out of my heart by the roots. How will you do it? By marrying Medvedenko. The school teacher? Yes. I don't see the necessity for that. 
oh, if you knew what it is to love without hope for years and years, to wait forever for something that will never come, I shall not marry for love. But marriage will at least be a change and will bring new cares to deaden the memories of the past. Shall we have another drink? Haven't you had enough? Fiddlesticks. He fills a glass. Don't look at me with that expression on your face. Women drink oftener than you imagine, but most of them do it in secret and not openly as I do. They do indeed, and it is always either vodka or brandy. Your good health. You are so easy to get on with that I am sorry to see you go. Thank you. And I am sorry to leave. You should ask her to stay. She would not do that now. Her son has been behaving outrageously. First he attempted suicide, and now I hear he is going to challenge me to a duel, though what his provocation may be, I can't imagine. He's always sulking and sneering and preaching about a new form of art, as if the field of art were not large enough to accommodate both old and new without the necessity for jostling. It is jealousy. However, that is none of my business. A pause. Jacob walks through the room carrying a trunk. Nina comes in and stands by the window. That school teacher of mine is none too clever, but he is very good, poor man. And he loves me dearly, and I am sorry for him. However, let me say goodbye and wish you a pleasant journey. Remember me kindly in your thoughts. She shakes hands with him. Thanks for your goodwill. Send me your books and be sure to write something in them. Nothing formal, but simply this. To Masha, who, forgetful of her origin, for some unknown reason, is living in this world. Goodbye. She goes out. Is it odd or even? Even. <sighs> no. It is odd. I had only one pea in my hand. I wanted to see whether I was to become an actress or not. If only someone would advise me what to do. One cannot give advice in a case like this. We shall soon part. Perhaps never meet again. I should like to accept this. I should like you to accept this little medallion as a remembrance of me. I've had your initials engraved on it. And on this side is this name of one of your books, Days and Nights. How sweet of you. It is a lovely present. Think of me sometimes. I shall never forget you. I shall always remember you as I saw you that bright day. Do you recall it? A week ago when you wore that light dress and we talked together and the white seagull lay on the beat bench beside us? Yes, the seagull. I beg you to let me see you alone for two minutes before you go. She goes out to the left. At the same moment, Arkadina comes in from the right, following by Sorkin in a, Sorin in a long coat with his orders on his breast, and, a ya and by Yaakov, who is busy packing. Stay here at home, you poor old man. How could you pay visits with that rheumatism of yours? Who left the room just now? Was it Nina? Yes. I beg your pardon? I'm afraid we interrupted you. I 
think everything is packed. I am absolutely exhausted. Days and nights, page 121, lines 11 and 12. Um, shall I pack your fishing rods, sir, too? Yes, uh, I shall need them, but you can give my books away. Very good, sir. Page 121, lines 11 and 12. Have we my books here in the house? Yes, they are in my brother's library, in the corner cupboard. You are going away and I shall be lonely without you. What would you do in town? Oh, nothing in particular, but somehow. (laughs) They're soon to lay the cornerstone of the new courthouse here. How I should like to leap out of this minnow pond if but for an hour or two. I'm tired of lying here like an old cigarette stump. I have ordered the carriage for one o'clock. We can go away together. No, you must stay here. Don't be lonely and don't catch cold. Keep an eye on my boy. Take good care of him. Guide him along the proper paths. I'm going away and so shall never find out why Constantine shot himself. But I think chief reason was jealousy. And the sooner I take Dragoran away, the better. There were, how how shall I explain it to you? Other reasons besides jealousy for his act. Here's a clever young chap living in the depths of the country without money or position, with no future ahead of him and with nothing to do. He is ashamed and afraid of being so idle. I am devoted to him, and he is fond of me, but nevertheless, he feels that he is useless here, that he is little more than a dependent in the house. It is the pride in him. He is a misery to me. He might possibly enter the army. It seems to me that the best thing for him would be if you were to let him have a little money. For one thing, he ought to be allowed to dress like a human being. See how he looks, wearing that same little old coat that he has had for three years. And he doesn't even possess an overcoat. It wouldn't hurt the youngster to sow a few wild oats. Let him go abroad, say, for a time. It it wouldn't cost much. (laughs) Yes, but, however, I think I might manage about his clothes. But I couldn't let him go abroad. And no, I don't think... I can let him have his clothes, even though I have no money at present. (laughs) I haven't, indeed. Very well. Forgive me, darling. Don't be angry. You are a noble, generous woman. I really haven't the money. If I had any money, of course, I should let him have some myself, but I haven't even a penny. The farm manager takes my pension from me, puts it all into the farm or into cattle or bees. And in that way, it is always lost forever. The bees die. The cows die. They never let me have a horse. Of course, I have some money. But I am an actress. And my expenses for dress alone are enough to bankrupt me. (sighs) You are a dear, and I am very fond of you. 
indeed I am. But something is the matter with me again. I, I feel giddy. I feel faint and all. Peter! She tries to support him. Peter, dearest! Trepliev and Medvinko come in. Trepliev has a bandage around his head. He's fainting. I'm, I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm all right. He smiles and drinks some water. It, it's all over now. Don't be frightened, Mother. These attacks are not dangerous. My uncle often has them now. You must go and lie down, Uncle. Yes, I think I shall for for a few minutes. I'm going to Moscow all the same, but I shall lie down a bit before I start. Uh, do you know this riddle? On a four legs in the morning, on two legs at noon, and on three legs in the evening? Ugh. Oh, uh, yes, exactly. And on one's back at night. Thank you. <laughs> I, I can walk alone. Jeremy, what formality? Ian Soren, go out. You give me a dreadful fright. It's not good for him to live in the country, Mother. If you'd only untie your purse strings for once and lend him a thousand rubles, he could then spend a whole year in town. I have no money. I am an actress and not a banker. Please... Change my bandage for me, Mother. You do it so gently. Arkadina goes to the cupboard and takes out a box of bandages and a bottle of iodoform. Doctor is late. Yes, he promised to be here at nine, and now it is noon already. Sit down. She takes the bandage off his head. You look as if you had a turban on. A stranger that was in the kitchen yesterday asked to what nationality you belonged. Your wound is almost healed. You won't be up to any more of these silly tricks again, will you, when I'm gone? No, Mother, I did that in a moment of insane despair when I had lost all control over myself. It'll never happen again. Your touch is golden. I remember when you were still acting at the State Theater long ago, when I was still a little chap, there was one, there was a fight one day in our court and the poor washerwoman was almost beaten to death. She was picked up unconscious and you nursed her till she was well and bathed her children in the wash tubs. Have you forgotten it? Yes, entirely. She puts on a new bandage. Two ballet dancers lived in the same house, and they used to come and drink coffee with you. I remember that. They were very pious. I love you again. These last few days, as tenderly and trustingly as I did as a child. I have no one left me now but you. Why, why do you let yourself be controlled by that man? You don't understand him, Constantine. He has a wonderfully noble personality. Nevertheless, when he was told that I wished to challenge him to a duel, his nobility does not prevent him from playing the coward. 
he is about to beat an ignominious retreat. <laughs> Nonsense. I have asked him myself to go. <laughs> a noble personality indeed. Here we are almost quarreling over him, and he is probably in the garden laughing at us this very moment, or else enlightening Nina's mind and trying to persuade her into thinking him a man of genius. You enjoy saying unpleasant things to me. I have the greatest respect for that man, and I must ask you to not to speak ill of him in my presence. I have no respect for him at all. You want me to think him a genius, as you do, but I refuse to lie. His books make me sick. You envy him. There is nothing left for people with no talent and mighty pretensions to do but to criticize those who are really gifted. I hope you enjoy the consolation it brings. Those who are really gifted indeed. I am cleverer than any of you if it comes to that. You are <laughs> of, of convention. You have seized the upper hand and now lay down as law any everything that you do. All you... All else you strangle and trample on. I refuse to accept your point of view, yours and his. I refuse. That is the talk of the decadent. Go back to your beloved stage and act the miserable ditchwater plays you so much admire. I never acted in a play like that in my life. You couldn't write even the trashiest musical farce, you idle good-for-nothing. Miser. Ragbag. Treflia sits down and begins to cry softly. Don't cry. You mustn't cry. You really mustn't. My darling child, forgive me. Forgive your wicked mother. <sighs> oh, if only you could know what it, it is to have lost everything under heaven. She does not love me. I see I shall never be able to write. Every hope has deserted me. Don't this will all pass. He is going away today, and she will love you once more. Stop crying. We have made peace again. Yes, mother. Make your peace with him, too. Don't fight with him. You surely won't fight. I won't, but you must not insist on me seeing him again, Mother. I couldn't stand it. Trigorin comes in. There he is. I am going. He quickly puts on... Sorry, he quickly puts the medicines away in the cupboard. The doctor will attend to my head. Page 121, lines 11 and 12. There it is. If at any time you should have need of my life, come and take it. Treplieff picks up the bandage off the floor and goes out. The carriage will be here soon. If at any time you should have need of my life, come and take it. I hope your things are all packed. Uh, yes, yes. Why do I hear a note of sadness that rings in my heart in this cry of a poor soul? If at any time you should have need of my life, come and take it. Let us stay here one more day. Do let us stay. I know, dearest, what keeps you here, but you must 
control yourself. Be sober. Your emotions have intoxicated you a little. You must be sober, too. Be sensible. Look upon what has happened as a true friend. You are capable of self-sacrifice. Be a friend to me and release me. Are you so much in love? I am irresistibly impelled towards her. It, it may be just that this is just what I need. What? The love of a country girl? Oh, how little you know yourself. People sometimes walk in their sleep, and so I feel as if I were asleep and dreaming of her as I stand here talking to you. My imagination is shaken by the sweetest and most glorious visions. Release me. No, no! I am only an ordinary woman. You must not say such things to me. Do not torment me, Boris. Frighten me. You could be an extraordinary woman if you only would. Love alone can bring happiness on earth. Love, the enchanting, the poetical love of youth that sweeps away the sorrows of the world. I had no time for it when I was young and struggling with want and laying siege to the literary fortress. But now, at last, this love has come to me. I see it beckoning. Why should I fly? You are mad. Release me. You have all conspired together to torture me today. She doesn't understand. She won't understand me. Am I in so old and ugly already that you can talk to me like this without any shame about another woman? Oh, you have lost your senses. My splendid, my, my glorious friend, my love for you is the last chapter of my life. You are my pride, my joy, my light. I could never endure it should you desert me. If only for an hour I should go mad. Oh, my wonder, my marvel, my king. Someone might come in. Let them come. I am not ashamed of my love. My jewel, my despair. You are to do a foolish thing, but I don't want you to do it. I shan't let you do it. You are mine. You are mine. This forehead is mine, these eyes are mine, this silky hair is mine, all your being is mine. You are so clever, so wise. The first of all living writers, you are the only hope of your country. You, you are so fresh, so simple, so, so deeply humorous. You can bring out every feature of a man or of a landscape in a single line and your characters live and breathe. Do you not think that these words are but the incense of flattery? Do you think I am not speaking the truth? Come, look into my eyes, look deep. Do you find lies there? No, you, you see that I alone know how to treasure you. I alone tell you the truth. My, my very dear, will you go with me? You will. You will not forsake me. I have no will of my own. I never had. I'm too indolent, too submissive, too phlegmatic to have any. Is it possible that women like that? Take me. Take me away with you, but do not let me stir a step from your side. Oh, now he is mine. <clears throat> 
Of course, you must stay here if you really want to. I, I, I shall go, and you can follow in a week's time. Yes, really. Why should you hurry away? Let's go together. As you like. Let us go together, then. Pause. Trigorin writes something in his notebook. What are you writing? A happy expression I heard this morning. A grove of maiden pines. Maybe useful. So, we are really off again. Condemned once more to railway carriages, to stations and restaurants and hamburger steaks and endless arguments. I am sorry to have to inform you that your carriage is at the door. It is time to start, honored madam. The train leaves at 2.5. Would you be kind enough, madam, to remember to inquire for me where Sulstatsev, the actor, is now? Is he still alive, I wonder? Is he well? He and I have had many a jolly time together. He was inimitable in the stolen mail. A tragedian called Ismailov was in the same company, I remember, who was also quite remarkable. Well, don't hurry, madam, you still have five minutes. They were both of them conspirators once in the same melodrama, and one night, when in the course of the play they were suddenly discovered, instead of saying, we have been trapped, Ismailov cried out, we have been wrapped! Wrapped! <laughs> Ali's <laughs> been talking, Yakov has been busy with the trunks, and the maid has brought Arkadina her hat, coat, parasol, and gloves. The cook looks hesitatingly through the door on the right and finally comes into the room. Polina comes in, Medivinko comes in. Here are some plums for the journey. They are very sweet ones. You may want to nibble something good on the way. You are very kind, Polina. Goodbye, my dearie. If things have not been quite as you could have wished, please forgive us. It has been delightful. Delightful. You mustn't cry. Soren comes in through the door on the left, dressed in a long coat with a cape and carrying his hat and cane. He crosses the room. Come, sister, it is time to start unless you want to miss the train. I'm going to get into the carriage. He goes out. I shall walk quickly to the station and see you off there. He goes out. Goodbye, all. We shall meet again next summer if we live. The maidservant, Jakob, and the cook kiss her hand. Don't forget me. She gives the cook a ruble. There is a ruble for all three of you. Thank you, miss. A pleasant journey to you. God bless you, mistress. Send us a line to cheer us up. Goodbye, sir. Where is Constantine? Tell him I'm starting. I must say goodbye to him. I gave the cook a ruble for all three of you. I'll go out through the door on the right. The stage remains empty. Sounds of farewell are heard. The maid comes running back to fetch the basket of plums, which has been forgotten. Trigorin comes back. I'd forgotten my cane. I think I left it on the terrace. He goes toward the door on the right and meets Nina, who comes in at that moment. Is that you? We're off. I knew we should meet again. I have come to an irrevocable decision. The die is cast. I am going on the stage. 
I'm deserting my father and abandoning everything. I'm beginning life anew. I am, I am going as you are to Moscow. We shall meet there. Go to the Hotel Slaviansky Bazaar. Let me know as soon as you get there. I shall be at the Groshulsky uh, house on Moltanoshka Street. I must go now. Just one more minute. You're so beautiful. What bliss to think I shall see you again so soon. I shall see those glorious eyes again. Wonderful, ineffable, tender smile. These gentle features with their expression of angelic purity. My darling. A prolonged kiss. The curtain falls. Two years elapse between the third and fourth acts. Act four, a sitting room in Soren's home, which has been converted into a writing room for Trefliev. To the right and left are doors leading to inner rooms, and in the center is a glass door opening onto a terrace. Besides the usual furniture of a sitting room, there is a writing desk in the right-hand corner of the room. There's a Turkish divan near the door on the left, and shelves full of books stand against the walls. Books are lying scattered about on the windowsills and chairs. It is evening. The room is dimly lighted by a shaded lamp on the table. The wind moans in the treetops and whistles down the chimney. The watchman in the garden is heard sounding his rattle. But Denko and Masha come in. Mr. Constantine, where are you? There's no one here. His old uncle is forever asking for Constantine and can't live without him for an instant. He dreads being left alone. This is a wild night. You've had this storm for two days. The waves on the lake are enormous. It is very dark in the garden. Do you know, I think the old theater ought to be knocked down. It is still standing there, naked and hideous as a skeleton, with the curtain flapping in the wind. I thought I heard a voice weeping in it as I passed there last night. What an idea. Come home with me, Masha. I shall spend the night here. Do come home, Masha. The baby must be hungry. Nonsense. Matronia will feed it. It is a pity to leave him there three nights without his mother. You are getting too tiresome. You used sometimes to talk of other things besides home and the baby. Home and the baby. That is all I ever hear from you now. Come home, Masha. You can go home if you want to. Your father won't give me a horse. Yes, he will. Ask him. I think I shall. Are you coming home tomorrow? Yes, yes, tomorrow. She takes snuff. Trepiev and Paulina come in. Trepiev is carrying some pillows and a blanket, and Paulina is carrying sheets and pillowcases. They lay them on the divan, and Trepiev goes and sits down at his desk. Who is that for, Mother? Mr. Soren asked to sleep in Constantine's room tonight. Let me make the bed. He makes the bed. Paulina goes up to the desk and looks at the manuscripts lying on it. Well... I am going. Goodbye, Masha. He kisses his wife's hand. 
Ah, uh, goodbye, mother. He tries to kiss his mother-in-law's hand. Be off in God's name. Shreptiev takes hands with him in silence and Medvedenko goes out. No one ever dreamed, Constantine, that you would one day turn into a real author. The magazines pay you well for your stories. You have grown handsome, do. Dear, kind Constantine, be a little nicer to my Masha. Leave him alone, mother. She is a sweet child. A woman, Constantine, asks only for kind looks. I know that from experience. Shepliev gets up from his desk and goes out without a word. There now, you have vexed him. I told you not to bother him. I am sorry for you, Masha. Much I need your pity. My heart aches for you. I see how things are and understand. You see what doesn't exist. Hopeless love is only found in novels. It is a trifle. All one has to do is to keep a tight rein on oneself and keep one's head clear. Love must be plucked out the moment it springs up in the heart. My husband has been promised to school in another district, and when we have once left this place, I shall forget it all. I shall tear my passion out by the roots. The notes of a melancholy waltz are heard in the distance. Constantine is playing. That means he is sad. The great thing, mother, is not to have him continually in sight. If my Simon could only get his remove, I should forget it all in a month or two. It is a trifle. Dorn and Medvedenko come in through the door on the left, wheeling Soren in an armchair. I have six mouths to feed now, and flour is at 70 kopecks. A hard riddle to solve. Well, it is easy, it is easy for you to make light of it. You are rich enough to scatter money to your chickens if you wanted to. You think I am rich? My friend, after practicing for 30 years, during which I could not call my soul my own for one minute, of the night or day, I succeeded at last in scraping together 1,000 rubles, all of which went not long ago in a trip which I took abroad. I haven't a penny. So you didn't go home after all. Who can I go home when they won't give me a horse? Would I might never see your face. Doran, in his chair, is wheeled to the left-hand side of the room. Paulina, Masha, and Doran sit beside him. Medvi and Denko stand sadly aside. What a lot of changes you have made here. You've turned this sitting room into a library. Constantine likes to work in this room because from it he can step out into the garden to meditate whenever he feels like it. The watchman's rattle is heard. Where's, where's my sister? She's gone to the station to meet Trigora, and she will soon be back. I must be dangerously ill if you had to send for my sister. A nice business this is. Here I am, dangerously ill, and you won't even give me any medicine. What shall I prescribe for you? Chamomile tea? Soda? Quinine? Don't inflict any of your discussions on me again. Is that bad for me? Yes, for you, sir. Thank you. 
I'm going to give Constantine an idea for a story. It shall be called The Man Who Wished, Lum Kiavulu. When I was young, I wished to become an author. I failed. I wished to become an orator. I speak abominably. With my eternal and all and all dragging each sentence on and on until I sometimes break out into a sweat all over. I wished to marry and I didn't. I wished to live in the city. And here I am ending my days in the country and all. You wish to become a state councillor, and you are one. <laughs> I didn't try for that. It came of its own accord. Come, you must admit that it is petty to cavil at life at 62 years of age. You are pig-headed. Can't you see I want to live? That is futile. Nature has commanded that every life shall come to an end. You speak like a man who is satiated with life. Your thirst for it is quenched, so you are calm and indifferent, but even you dread death. The fear of death is an animal passion, which must be overcome. Only those who believe in a future life and tremble for sins committed can logically fear death. But you, for one thing, don't believe in a future life, and for another, you haven't committed any sins. You've served as a counselor for 25 years, that's all. <laughs> 28 years. Repliev comes in and sits down on a stool at Soren's feet. Masha fixes her eyes on his face and never once tears them away. We are keeping Constantine from his work. No matter. Of all the cities you visited when you were abroad, Doctor, which one did you like the best? Genoa. Why Genoa? Because there is such a splendid crowd in its streets. When you leave the hotel in the evening and throw yourself into the heart of that throng and move with it without aim or object, swept along hither and thither, their life seems to be yours, their soul flows into you and you begin to believe at last in a great world spirit like the one in your play that Nina Zaryechnaya acted. By the way, where is Nina now? Is she well? I believe so. Here she's led rather a strange life. What happened? It's a long story, Doctor. Tell it shortly. She ran away from home and joined Trigorin. You know about that. Yes. She had a child that died. Trigorin soon tired of her and returned to his former ties as one might have expected. He'd never broken them indeed, but out of weakness, a character had always vacillated between the two. As far as I can make out from what I've heard, uh, Nina's domestic life has not been altogether a success. What about her acting? I believe she made an even worse failure of that. She made her debut on the stage of the summer theater in Moscow, and after May were of country towns. At that time, I never let, let her out of my sight, and wherever she went, I followed. She always attempted great and difficult parts, but her delivery was harsh and monotonous, and her 
gestures heavy and crude. She shrieked and died well at times, but those were but moments. And she really has a talent for acting? I never could make out. I be believe she has. I saw her, but she refused to see me, and her servant would never admit me to her rooms. I appreciated her feelings and did not insist upon a meeting. What more can I tell you? Um, she sometimes writes to me now that I've come home, and such clever, sympathetic letters, full of warm feeling. She never complains, but I can tell she is profoundly unhappy. Not a line, but speaks to me of an aching, breaking nerve. She has one strange fancy. She always signs herself the seagull. The miller in Rusalka called himself the crow, and so she repeats in all her letters that she is a seagull. She's here now. What do you mean by here? In the village, at the inn. She's been there for five days. I should have gone to see her, but Masha here went, and she refuses to see anyone. Someone told me she had been seen wandering in the fields a mile from here yesterday evening. Yes, I saw her. She was walking away from here in the direction of the village. I asked her why she had not been to see us. She said she would come. But she won't. Her, fa her father and stepmother have disowned her. They have even put a watchman all around their estate to keep her away. He goes with the doctor towards the desk. How easy it is, doctor, to be a philosopher on paper and how difficult in real life. She was a beautiful girl. Even the state councillor himself was in love with her for a time. Well, Lovelace, you. <laughs> They're coming back from the station. Yes, I hear my mother's voice. Arkadina and Trigorin come in, followed by Shamrave. We all <clears throat> grow old and wither, my lady, while you alone, with your light dress, your gay spirits, and your grace, Keep the secret of eternal youth. You are still trying to turn my head, you tiresome old man. How do you do, Peter? What, still ill? Silly of you. How are you, Miss Masha? So you recognize me. She shakes hands with him. Did you marry him? Long ago. You are happy now? He bows to Doran and Medvedenko and then goes hesitatingly towards Trepliev. Your mother says you have forgotten the past and are no longer angry with me. Trepliev gives him his hand. Here is a magazine that Boris has brought you with your latest story in it. Many thanks. You are very kind. Your admirers all send you their regards. Everyone in Moscow and St. Petersburg is interested in you and all ply me with questions about you. They ask me what you look like, how old you are, whether you are fair or dark. For some reason, they all think that you are no longer young and no one knows who you are as you always write under an assumed name. You are great as mystery as the man in the iron mask. Do you expect to be here long? No. I must go back to Moscow tomorrow. I'm finishing another novel and have promised something to a magazine besides. In fact, it's the same old business. 
During their conversation, Arkadina and Paulina have put up a card table in the center of the room. Shamria lights the candles and arranges the chairs, then fetches a box of lotto from the cupboard. The weather has given me a rough welcome. The wind is frightful. If it goes down by morning, I shall go fishing in the lake and shall have a look at the garden and the spot. Uh, do you remember where your play was given? I remember the piece very well, but uh, I should like to see again where the scene was laid. Father, do please let my husband have a horse. He ought to go home. A horse to go home with? You know the horses have just been to the station. I can't just send them out again. But there are other horses. You are impossible. I shall. Go on foot, Masha. On foot in this weather. She takes a seat at the card table. Shall we begin? It is only six miles. Goodbye. He kisses his wife's hand. Goodbye, mother. His mother-in-law gives him her hand unwillingly. I should not have troubled you all, but the baby. He bows to everyone. Goodbye. He goes out with an apologetic air. He will get there all right. Oh, come, let us begin. Don't let us waste time. We shall soon be called to supper. Shemrev, Masha, and Doran sit down at the card table. When the long autumn evenings descend on us, we we while away the time here by playing lotto. <laughs> Look at this old set. We used it when our mother played with us as children. <laughs> Don't you want to take a hand in the game with us until supper time? He and Tricorin sit down at the table. It is a monotonous game, but it is all right when one gets used to it. She deals three cards to each of the players. He has read his own story and hasn't even cut the pages of mine. He lays the magazine on the desk and goes towards the door on the right, stopping as he passes his mother to give her a kiss. Won't you play, Constantine? No, excuse me, please. I don't feel like it. I'm going to take a turn around through the rooms. He goes out. Are you all ready? I shall begin. 22. Here it is. Three. Right. Have you put down three? Eight. Eighty-one. Ten. Don't go so fast. Could you believe it? I am still dazed by the reception they gave me in Kharkov. Thirty-four. The notes of the melancholy waltz are heard. The students gave me an ovation. They sent me three baskets of flowers and a wreath and this thing here. Jen clasps the brooch from her breast and lays it on the table. There is something worthwhile. Mm. Fifty. Fifty, did you say? I wore a perfectly magnificent dress. I am no fool when it comes to clothes. He was playing again. The poor boy is sad. He's been severely criticized in the papers. 77. They want to attract attention to him. Doesn't seem to be able to make a success. He can't somehow strike the right note. There's an odd vagueness about his writings that sometimes verges on delirium. He has never created a single living character. 11. 
Are you bored, Peter? He's asleep. Counselor is taking a nap. Seven, ninety. Do you think I should write if I lived in such a place as this? On the shore of a lake? Never. I should overcome my, my passion and give life, my life up to the catching of fish. Twenty-eight. And if I caught a perch or a bass, what bliss it would be. I have great faith in Constantine. I know there's something in him. He thinks in images. His stories are vivid and full of color and always affect me deeply. It is only a pity that he has no definite object in view. He creates impressions and nothing more and cannot go far on impressions alone. Are you glad, madam, that you have an author for a son? <laughs> Just think, I have never read anything of his. I never have the time. 26. Trepliev comes in quietly and sits down at his table. We have something here that belongs to you, sir. What is it? You told me to have the seagull stuffed that Mr. Constantine killed some time ago. Did I? I don't remember. 61, 1. Trepliev throws open the window and stands listening. How dark the night is. I wonder what makes me so restless. Shut the window, Constantine. There's a draft in here. Trepliev shuts the window. 98. See, my card is full. Bravo. Bravo! Bravo! Wherever he goes and whatever he does, that man always has good luck. And now, come to supper. Our renowned guest did not have any dinner today. We can continue our game later. Come, Constantine, leave your writing and come to supper. I don't want anything to eat, Mother. I'm not hungry. As you please. She wakes Soren. Come to supper, Peter. Shamrath's arm. Let me tell you all about my reception in Kharkov. Paulina blows out the candles on the table, then she and Doran roll Soren's chair out of the room and all go out through the door on the left, except Trepliev, who is left alone. Trepliev prepares to write. He runs his eye over what he has already written. I have talked a great deal about new forms of art, but I feel myself gradually slipping into the beaten track. Placker cried it from the wall, a pale face in a frame of dusky hair, cried frame. Ugh, that is stupid. I shall begin from the place where the hero is wakened by the noise of the rain, but what follows must go. Description of a moonlight, a moonlight night before your eyes, but I speak of the shimmering light, the twinkling stars, the distant sound of a piano melting into the still and scented air, and the rest is abominable. The conviction is gradually forcing itself upon me that good literature is not a question of forms new or old, but of ideas that must pour freely from the author's heart without bothering his head about any forms whatsoever.
can't see anything. I heard someone run down the steps. Who is there? He goes out and is heard walking quickly along the terrace. In a few minutes, he comes back with Nina. With Nina. Oh, Nina. Nina. Nina lays her head on Triplia's breast and stifles her sobs. Nina. Nina, it is you. I, I felt you would come. All day my heart has been aching for you. He takes off her hat and coat. Hey, darling. My beloved has come back to me. We mustn't cry. We mustn't cry. There is someone here. No one is here. Lock the door. Someone might come. No one will come in. I know your mother is here. Lock the door. Chapliev locks the door on the right and comes back to Nina. There is no lock on that one. I shall put a chair against it. He puts an armchair against the door. Don't be frightened. No one shall come in. Let me look at you. It is warm and comfortable in here. This used to be the sitting room. Have I changed much? Yes, you have grown thinner and your eyes are larger than they were. Nina, it seems so strange to see you. Why didn't you let me go to you? Why didn't you, why didn't you come sooner to me? You have been here nearly a week, I know. I have been several times each day to where you live and have stood like a beggar beneath your window. I was afraid you might hate me. I dream every night that you look at me without recognizing me. I have been wandering about on the shores of the lake ever since I came back. I have often been near your house, but I have never had the courage to come in. Let us sit down. Let us sit down and talk our hearts out. It's so quiet and warm in here. Do you hear the wind whistling outside? As Turgenev says, happy is he who can sit at night under the roof of his home, who has a warm corner in which to take refuge. I am a seagull. And yet, no. What was I saying? Uh, yes, um, Turgenev, he says, and God help all houseless wanderers. Nina, you're crying again, Nina. It is all right. I shall feel better after this. I have not cried for two years. I went to the garden last night to see if our old theater was, was still standing. I see it is. I wept there for the first time in two years and my heart grew lighter and my soul saw more clearly again. See, I am not crying now. So you are an author now and I'm an actress. We have both been sucked into the whirlpool. My life used to be as happy as a child's. I used to wake singing in the morning. I loved you and I dreamt of fame and what is the reality? Tomorrow morning, early, I must start for else by train in a third class carriage with a lot of peasants and else the educated tradespeople will pursue me with compliments. It is a rough life. Why are you going to else? I have accepted an engagement there for the winter. It's time for me to go. Nina, I have cursed you and hated you and torn up your photograph, and yet 
I have known every minute of my life that my heart and soul were yours forever. To cease from loving you is beyond my power. I have suffered continually from the time I lost you and began to write and my life has been almost unendurable. My youth was suddenly plucked from me then and I seem now to have lived in this world for 90 years. I have called out to you. I have kissed the ground you walked on. Wherever I looked, I have seen your face before my eyes and the smile that had illuminated me the best years of my life. Why, why does he talk to me like this? I am quite alone, unwarmed by any attachment. I am as cold as if I were living in a cave. Whatever I write is dry and gloomy and harsh. Stay here, Nina. I beseech you, or else let me go away with you. Nina quickly puts on her coat and hat. Nina, why do you do that? For God's sake, Nina. He watches her as she dresses. Pause. My carriage is at the gate. Do not come out to see me off. I shall find the way alone. Let me have some water. Jeff hands her a glass of water. Where are you going? Back to the village. Is your mother here? Yes, my uncle fell ill on Thursday and we telegraphed for her to come. Why do you say that? You have kissed the ground I walk on. You should kill me rather. I am so tired. If I could only rest, rest. I am a seagull. No, no, I am an actress. She hears Arkadina and Trigorin laughing in the distance, runs to the door on the left and looks through the keyhole. He is there too. She goes back to Trefliak. Ah, well, no matter. He does not believe in the theater. He used to laugh at my dreams so that little by little I became downhearted and ceased to believe in it too. Then came all the cares of love and continual anxiety about my little one so that I soon grew trivial and spiritless and played my parts without meaning. I never knew what to do with my hands and I could not walk properly or control my voice. You cannot imagine the state of mind one who knows as he goes through a play how terribly badly he is acting. I am a seagull. No, no, that is not what I meant to say. Do do you remember how you shot a seagull once? A man chanced to pass that way and destroyed it out of idleness. That is an idea for a short story, but is not what I meant to say. What was I saying? Oh, yes, the stage. I have changed now. Now I am a real actress. I act with joy, with exaltation. I am intoxicated by it, and I feel that I am superb. I have been walking and walking and thinking and thinking ever since I've been here, and I feel the strength of my spirit growing in me every day. I know now. I understand at last, Constantine, that for us, whether we write or act, it is it is not the honor and glory of which I have dreamt that is important. It is the strength to endure. One must know how to bear one's cross and one must have faith. I believe 
And so do not suffer so much. And when I think of my calling, I do not fear life. You have found your way. You know where you're going, but I am still groping in a chaos of phantoms and dreams, not knowing whom and what end I am serving by it all. I do not believe in anything, and I do not know what my calling is. I must go. Goodbye. When I become a famous actress, you must come and see me. Well, you promised to come, but now. It is late. I can hardly stand. I am fainting. I am hungry. Stay, and let me bring you some supper. No, no. And don't come out. I can find the way alone. My carriage is not far away. So she brought him back with her. However, what difference can that make to me? Don't let Trigorin any, uh, don't let, don't tell Trigorin anything when you see him. I love him. I love him even more than I used to. It is an idea for a short story. I love him. I love him passionately. I love him to despair. Have you forgotten, Constantine, how pleasant the old times were? What a gay, bright, gentle, pure life we led. How a feeling as sweet and tender as a flower blossomed in our hearts. Do you remember? All men and beasts, lions, eagles, and quails, horned stags, geese, spiders, silent fish that inhabit the waves, starfish from the sea, and creatures invisible to the eye. In one word, life, all, all life, completing the dreary round set before it has died out at last. A thousand years have passed since the earth last bore a living creature on its breast, and an unhappy moon now lights her lamp in vain. No longer are the cries of storks heard in the meadows, or the drone of the beetles in the grooves of limes. She embraces Shefliev impetuously and runs out onto the terrace. It would be a pity if she were, spe- if she were seen in the garden. My mother would be distressed. He stands for several minutes tearing up his manuscripts and throwing them under the table, then unlocks the door on the right and goes out. Odd! This door seems to be locked. He comes in and puts the chair back in its former place. This is like a hurdle race. Arkadina and Paulina come in, followed by Jakob carrying some bottles, and then come Masha, Shrem, Hamrev, and Trigorin. Put the claret and the beer here on the table so that we can drink while we are playing. Sit down, friends. And bring the tea at once. She lights the candles and takes her seat at the card table. Shamrev leads Trigorin to the cupboard. Here is the stuffed seagull I was telling you about. He told me to have it done. I don't remember a thing about it. Not a thing. A shot is heard. Everyone jumps. What was that? Nothing at all. Probably one of my medicine bottles has blown up. Don't worry. He goes out through the door on the right and comes back in a few moments. It is just as I thought. A flask of ether has exploded. Spellbound once more, I stand before thee. Oh, heavens. I was really frightened. That noise reminded me of 
<laughs> Everything is black before my eyes. There was an article from America in this magazine about, about two months ago that I wanted to ask you about, among other things. He leads to go into the front of the stage. I'm very much interested in this question. He lowers his voice and whispers. Must take Madame Arcadina away from here. What I, I wanted to say was that Constantine has shot himself. The curtain falls.